What a joy singing together this morning. That would be, a few of those would be a good song to sing on our way up, wouldn't it? Uh, come let us behold him. And uh, so, uh, so appreciate you guys wholeheartedly singing unto the Lord because it blessed my heart, my soul, and helped me sing a little louder than normal. And my wife was not standing beside me, elbowing me, like, ah. <laughs> People can hear you. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Anyway. And she's she's uh, she loves me. She's just looking out for me. Uh, you have a handout this morning. Did everyone get one? Uh, this is unusual day. I know, uh, odd. And hopefully uh, you've received one of those. If not, you can you can raise your hand, and one of the guys will get uh, get one of those to you. Um, ben, can you take care of that? Just raise your hand high there. And um, this is not original. Uh, those are not original statements. That's why you have a handout, because someone else did the work years ago, and I'm just benefiting from that. Uh, before we look at the Word of God together, and you can be finding your place in Philippians chapter number 1. I'd like to read a thank you uh, card from Jeff and Phyllis Harvey. That's Miss Jan's uh, son and daughter-in-law. So let me just read that for you. It says, Dear Pastor Stephen, uh, please share with the congregation at ABC our gratitude for the kindness and care you all have shown to my mother, Jan Harvey, over the years. No one realizes the peace of mind you all give to Phyllis and I being so attentive to and involved in her life, especially because we live so far away. You're truly not just her church, but her family, her church family. Words cannot describe how much you all are appreciated. Your caring and kindness were on full display when uh, many of you helped us celebrate her 90th birthday on March 5th. Thank you so much for all you do for her. Sincerely, Jeff and Phyllis Harvey. And I wouldn't just make a statement that they said we're not just uh, her church or her church family. That's what the church is supposed to be, isn't it? Uh, we are a family, the family of God. We come together. Uh, worship together, not just worshiping together. That's what church does. You, you come to one location, but we live together. We, uh, we grow in our faith together and walk, uh, walk this life together. So, well, um, thank you, church, for your kindness to Miss Jan. And she makes it easy, doesn't she? <laughs> she paid me to sit. No, she didn't. <laughs> uh, we love Miss, Miss Jan. What a blessing it is uh, she is to us. We have your Bibles open in front of you in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26. Uh, and I think the, you find your place. I'm just going to read these verses to get us familiar with that, and then we'll look at, uh, look at uh, Lord willing, uh, some implications together. The Bible says, For I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Pray with me one more time, would you please? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy, uh, the joy that is found in our Lord and Savior, your joy. Lord, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Give me clarity of thought and utterance and give us uh, ears to hear. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, four years ago, I was um, uh, in conversation with Ryan Marshall. Uh, He was was, uh, writing to me, sending me some documents about... Uh, questions and statements uh, that he wanted more clarity on, things that he wanted to know where I stood and what I believed about those things. And many of the questions that he asked uh, to flesh out in the pastoral search committee were normal questions that that you typically would understand. Was your philosophy of ministry? Was your philosophy of preaching? What do you, you know? And so I would answer these things in affirmative. I believe that. That's good. And and try to explain a little bit more what I think about those uh, topics. Among that was five sentences, five statements, which uh, all began with the word, uh, living the gospel is. And it was new to me. I'd, I'd never read those statements before. I didn't know where they came from. I didn't know what it was. I, I believe that you're meant to live out the gospel and by living the gospel, at least at my understanding at that point, is just being a Christian. Not living as a Christian, because the world seeks to do that. Religion tries to uh, call you to do that, but being a Christian. Living the gospel is living out of that Christ life, that new identity in Jesus Christ. And, and being born again, we could say it that way. So I agreed with that. And now, how do I explain the rest of the five statements, living the gospel? Is. Well, I did answer them and, uh, and uh, found out later on as I was searching on the website and, and through past sermons, I just could not find anywhere these statements were mentioned. Uh, so I was trying to be diligent like you do on any test. You want to have the right answer, right? And it had to be an essay answer, and that made it worse. Uh, but nevertheless, I was searching diligently and could not find it. Well, it wasn't until I arrived and, and began attending Pastor Ed's class at the ministry center that I come to realize that uh, these are five principles of discipleship, which Ed rotates uh, through quite often at the ministry center, uh, which has been a foundation not only for the discipleship at the church or at the ministry center, but also here at the church as well, uh, living the gospel. And you have those five statements in a piece of paper in front of you. Well, as I was looking at this section of scripture, three of these statements, living the gospels, living with uh, exalting Christ, eternal perspective, and another's orientation, those three really set uh, within the context of what's going on here in verses 19 through 26. And because it is such a foundational part of what we believe about discipleship and being a Christian and following Christ, I thought it good to be like Peter and bring those things to your remembrance. Now, normally, typically, I do not take another person's outline 
or their statement or their sermon. It feels like dancing with someone else's date, you know, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> I like to have one word points, but since it is so long, I, I decided I would write those out for you. That was awful. Sorry. <laughs> these, by the way, you know these are not original with me. They're Pastor Ed, something that God has worked in Pastor Ed's heart and life and throughout the ministry here at Adirondack Bible Chapel. And so I want to look at them together this morning, at least three of those today, uh, and then we'll see how that goes about what we'll do next week. We'll get the other two. Let me give you a little background for where we're at in, in verse 19 through 26 before we begin looking uh, further at what it means to live the Christian life, live the gospel uh, in these three implications. Paul is giving a testimony of where he's at and what's going on in his life. He, he has already told them about his rejoicing and the fact that the, the gospel has been advancing, uh, not only in the Roman guard, the, the imperial guard that uh, was Caesar's bodyguards, that elite uh, force of 900 soldiers, but it has also uh, brought about a, an encouragement or courage in the pastors and preachers within the region that are preaching the gospel. At the end, we conclude there are, there are some who are preaching out of their own ambition, and yet at the end of the day, Paul says, I rejoice because Christ is being uh, preached. And that is something we even alluded to last week and, and asserted that that is something we ought to rejoice in, the preaching and proclamation of Jesus Christ. And, and so Paul continues his conversation as he seems to be weighing out the options of life and death. Uh, what will be his outcome, he does not know. It, it begins at the first of this as if he doesn't know it could go either way. And at the end of this, he's like, no, I think I'll probably be delivered. Uh, so maybe the God's revealing this as he, as he is writing it out through the process of these verses. In, the, in, in looking at what we've read this morning, in the context, what we see is someone writing uh, with a, a clear view on, um, on life and death. And someone often says it is that view about life and death that puts things in proper perspective. In fact, David Gibson's work, Living Life Backwards, says we can't even live life now until we consider what happens after now, and that is death. Uh, many of you men remember that in our men's Bible study uh, many months ago. Well, Paul is, is looking at life not out of crisis, not out of conflict in his own heart. As we would say, conflict, the conflict here is what to choose uh, between these two options, life or death. Well, then he teaches us how to live life, how to live as a believer in Christ Jesus. And he lays down certain principles for us that, that are laid out for you in, in the points that we'll discuss this morning. How do we live this life as a believer in Christ? How do we live out the gospel? And so the first of which is found in verse number 20. And simply, that is, we live... Uh, the gospel, or living the gospel, is living with the earnest expectation to exalt Christ in all things by life or by death. It's very long. You can memorize that. I know some people have taken Ed's class have memorized it. As he does that kind of, you're in elementary school review week after week. 
Let me just say this. As we come to talk about the principles of discipleship and, and even what we have just mentioned, living with this earnest expectation to exalt Christ in all things, what we're saying is there's basic principles, truths, Uh, statements of facts and propositions which is meant to affect the way we live out this life namely how to be a follower of jesus christ how to grow in our walk with christ it's a principle uh, principles of discipleship the first of which is seen in our expectation notice again verse number 20 as it is in my eager expectation and hope that i will not be at all put to shame or be at all ashamed but with full courage now as always christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death and we have many expectations some of which you have had this morning as you have gotten ready to come to church this morning you expected good singing Uh, you expected the church service to go a certain way Uh, you expected a a short and, and nice sermon as Something I hear quite often, right? I won't say who, but... (laughs) So we have expectations that that things will go a certain way. It's not just about Sunday morning. It's about life itself. We live with certain expectations. We have things that we value in life, opinions and ideas about the way things should go, right? How many of you are like that? Some of you may say, well, I don't care how things go. You're just kind of floating along. But, but even that, you just hope somebody else's expectations doesn't force you to do something you don't want to do. So we all have expectations uh, in this life. Some of those expectations are good, reasonable. And let's just be honest, if I could tell you lovingly, since I don't know who you are specifically, some of your expectations are unreasonable about this life. And, Even about the Christian faith, some of your expectations are unbiblical and unreasonable. Here we we wrestle with the the expectation, and and I guess when when I say wrestling with the expectation, how do we live in a world when our expectations are not met? What is the perspective that we as Christians should have? Because we have come to, to the realization that many times our expectations of other people, our expectations of other places and businesses and countries and, and even our own expectations of ourselves are oftentimes led to disappointments. They're unmet or unfulfilled. One secular writer asserts this, that no Uh, that one of the biggest reasons people are unhappy in any given situation is their unmet expectations. Would you agree with that? As you have your quote in your notes, so you know who who said it, uh, our pastor Ed has told us throughout the years, our expectations drive our emotions. We're carried off by those things that are met and those things that are not met uh, in this life. Paul is not dealing with, and he's living in a unique place where he does not know the outcome of what's going to happen. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die, what's going to happen to him. And yet here he still sets an expectation for us. Not like us where we would say, I expect that things will go well. I expect that I'll get out of this and, and he'll let me go free or whatever the case may be how we think of things his expectation is that through this whole proceeding and process that i will exalt christ 
That's what he's saying here in verse number 20. It is my eager expectation, and the idea is that that thing which you look forward to, that, that you're concentrating on, that you're fixed upon. His expectation is that which is in front of him. He's, he's looking forward to it. He's fixed upon it. This is where his mind, his heart, his ambition is set. And that is that he will exalt Christ through this whole process. Now, you have to understand what he is meaning by exalting Christ. He's getting ready to stand trial before Caesar and, and, and all of the court and give a defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his own testimony of being converted on the road to Damascus. We at least believe that's what he's going to say because that's what he said all the way up to this point. And so he's saying that in the whole process of this, it is my desire, my earnest expectation, no matter the outcome, that through this, Christ will be magnified and exalted. He is praying and and desiring that as he stands before this council, he will with full courage as he has had before, he will give an account of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and why he is imprisonment. You and I are are not able always to handle the things or or have control on the things that go on in this life. Many things are out out of our grasp, out of our reach, even people in this life who who continually disappoint us yet in the middle of that what we can see and learn from paul is that we have a platform in our response to exalt christ when our expectations are met and aren't met i think that's what paul is conveying to us that he will not be put to shame but that christ will he will be magnified now part of this is met back in verse number 19 as confidence rest in the prayer of the saints, verse number 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he is contributing to his confidence. His, his expectation will be met in part because the community is praying for him, but also because the Spirit of God is working in him. Nevertheless, his great desire in this process is to exalt Christ. You know, you can think that way. You and I are meant to live like that. We're meant to live a life that is constantly fixed upon exalting Christ. And and that really governs the way I respond to to all of life, doesn't it? All of the discouragements and disappointments and shortcomings and and all of that stuff that that I have no control over and that's forced upon me and people don't do what I want to do when I want them to do it. In the midst of that, I'm left with that decision. I can respond in the flesh and fight for my own expectations or in that moment I can exalt Christ. Paul brings us to this higher desire and this higher expectation and I would say that is the desire and expectation ought to be the desire and expectation of every Christian man or woman, boy or girl in here. Every situation met and unmet expectation, disappointment and setback provides a platform for you and I to exalt Christ. Secondly, notice with me, not only we see this eager expectation to exalt Christ beginning in verse 21 through 23. I want to read back in verse number 11. Living the gospel is living with an internal perspective for the glory of God. Notice back at the end of his prayer for the Philippians found in verse number 11, he says that that he is praying that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is the end goal of everything, isn't it? 
glorify God and enjoy him forever, the old divines used to say. Well, they still say it if you read it out loud, I guess. Nevertheless, you see this anticipation, this desire to glorify God. Here in verse number 21, he begins by saying, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I wonder how you would answer the question, I live for what? Maybe you say, I live for the, the ocean. Salt life, isn't that this bumper sticker that you see? That mean, I guess that's what it means. At least it's what it told me on the internet. <laughs> well, some of you may say, I live for my grandkids. Some of you say, I live for my kids. Or maybe you used to say, I live for my kids, and now I live for my grandkids. It's probably more appropriate. We live for family and our possessions and all the other things that we describe our life. It is a complex life. It is, it is complicated, no doubt about that. But, but oftentimes we describe our life, the joys of it. We, we describe those things in, in the way of what gives us pleasure. What brings meaning to this existence to where it, it causes us to rise above just simply merely being alive and breathing and taking up space. And sometimes we go through seasons where we're not quite sure what we live for. But nevertheless, we, we, we do in our conversations say those things. I live for, for fishing. I never say that, by the way. But, I mean, Johnny might. He went fishing the other day. I live for something. It is interesting to me how Paul defines this. Because I think we're more like in our society John Bunyan's... Uh, novel or classic the pilgrim's progress where christian enters into vanity fair and there he is is distracted by all the wares and and distractions that are always for sale they never stop the fair is 365 days out of the year why because it always keeps us in the now and in the moment and in the pleasures of this life which are fleeting i think america is vanity fair I think we face that continually. Paul describes his life in verse 21, and, and honestly, it, it really takes me back. He says, life for me is Christ. To live is Christ. Now, I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same thing. At least I think I know what you're thinking. You're thinking there, there's a few words missing here, isn't there? There's a few things that he should add to that. Life is me preaching Jesus Christ. Life is me building the church. Life is me proclaiming the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. Life is me serving him. And and life is me me going to church. And life is me worshiping. And and you're thinking about all those things he, he should have put in there to make it more clear for us. Right? Maybe you're not thinking that. But now you are. See how that worked? But he doesn't, does he? It's just complicated. It's all-encompassing. It's, it's kind of in your face. Life is Christ. What do you mean by that? Well, we could say in one place he tells us that the very source of life, of our eternal life, the, the newness of our life, the very meaning of it is, is founded in Jesus Christ. 
We see in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. There I have died. It's no longer that I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For some of us, that may be even more perplexing. I died with him and now I live. It's he that lives in me. And, and what do you mean by this? At the very heart, our identity, our, our, our purpose, our meaning, the, the new birth that we have is, is found in Jesus Christ. He is the, the source and the substance of it. You can't disconnect him from salvation and what it means and who you are now if you're born again. In fact, what we find is, is that our strength and encouragement that we have as Christians this morning is found in the prayers of Christ and his continual presence with his people. Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He goes through that long list, we're encouraged by that. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Even the disciples in their endless journey to to spread the gospel to the end of the earth or to find courage and comfort in the task because, lo, I am with you always. It is Christ who is not only our strength and encouragement. He, He is our justification, our righteousness, our sanctification, our holiness. He is our He is our comfort, our delight, our peace. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is our Savior. He is our deliverer. He's the source of everything to us. He is our glorification is rooted in him. He is the, the object and the, and the source and the goal of our glorification. 1 John 3. We don't know what we're going to look like. But we know when we see him, we're going to be made like him. How about that? In fact, our blessed hope that as we anticipate heaven this morning... And that blessed hope given to us that you find in Titus chapter number 2. And that everlasting happiness. Isn't that what makes heaven something? Not everlasting dread. Not a little bit of happiness, Bob. But everlasting happiness. But it's not to be separated from Christ. No, it is given. It is ours. It is, it is our, our, our gift at the return of Christ. That's what we're looking for. We look for heaven in one way, but, but that looking for heaven is to look for that one main person in heaven that fills it with his glory and splendor, and that is Jesus Christ. We're not just looking for a rapture, an event. We're looking for a Savior who's coming back to bring us to himself. You can no more separate Christ from heaven than you can get to heaven based upon your own good works. Nor why would you ever want to. He is our everything. He is all we have and all we need as we've sung to him. To those who have Christ is to have everything. Is to have the whole new creation and Everlasting life. To be without Christ is to have nothing. And I don't care how much you have. What you possess. And Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? When he says you could have the whole world. It would be yours in your possession. But if you lost your soul, what is it? Why? Because heaven and earth will pass away. And all that we possess and all that we cling hold to will pass away. But all is ours in Christ. Beloved, he is everything to us. Our desire, our delight, our love, though we have not seen him. And no wonder when he says here, Christ is my life, where do you begin to explain that in a verse? 
It's just simply Christ. To live is Christ. I wish I, wish I could explain it in better words. And yet, as some translators read this, verse number 21, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As one writer says, it is, if I live, Christ is mine. If I die, Christ is mine. There's an old Southern gospel song that used to hear in many revivals. I am a winner either way, if I go or if I stay. It's about as close to singing I'll give for you. But isn't that true? <laughs> Amen. We are and we have everything in him. And because of that, turn over with me to Colossians chapter number 3. Because of this relationship, because of who he is, Paul tells us that the life that we now live is focused on him. Colossians 3. Verse number 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are of. There's a contrast here. That which is above is eternal. That which is below is temporary. That's where we had our minds, right? That's how we live this life apart from Christ. We lived in the moment and the now and vanity fair and whatever we wanted to give ourselves to. But now something has changed in Christ. We've been given a new, a new way to live. And he says that is setting our mind And our thoughts on those things which are above, on those things which are eternal. He goes on in verse number 3. For if you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and gone, when Christ... Notice what he says. Who is your life? Now you know what? If you and I were writing this, we would be like, okay, your life is hidden with Christ. I got that. And so when Christ appears, he will bring your life back with him. Isn't that kind of how we reason? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? He doesn't say that. He says, Christ, not just bring your life back with him. He says, Christ, who he himself is your life. If this is the case and he's bringing his life back, bringing your life back with him appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, we should put to death those things that are natural and earthly and sinful and seek those things which are true and eternal. Here Paul gives this implication here in verse number 21 back in Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact he, he seems to uh, be between the two options. That, that it is far better to be in the presence of Christ. Not just have Christ now as the way we have him now. But, but literally be in his presence. Be delivered from the body of sin and bondage. And can I say that is should be, ought to be. It really is a comfort to us. Because it tells us over and over in the language of far better in gain that heaven is far better in gain. Do you believe that? Boy, it would be miserable if it wasn't. It wouldn't be much of heaven. And Paul sets our mind right. Now we went a year and a half ago or two years, whoever knows whatever year it's at now we're at, but we went through a lot of fear about death, didn't we? Some of us even caught up and captivated by that and fought that in our own lives. I know many times in, in diagnosis, we, we, we have that that grips us. 
And so we need to be brought back to the reminder that, that this life is lived out for the glory of Christ and heaven is gained in the presence of Christ. And we can say with confidence with Paul, whether we live or whether we die, it's all gain because Christ is mine. That's all we need, beloved. But here he teaches us to have an eternal perspective, to look beyond the momentary things and to live according, uh, live pursuing Christ in his kingdom in this life that he gives us and to anticipate the joy that awaits us in heaven. In fact, we, we are actually equipped to pursue the kingdom of God here on earth because we continue to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God which is to come. And the more glorious it is shown to us, the more real it becomes to us in our life, the more effective we become here serving in the kingdom of God. A quote, uh, Pastor Ed again, as he goes through this, but I'm not sure I get it right. So I will say he said something like this once, I remember, that we really are no earthly good without an eternal perspective. That is true for all of us. But let me ask you this, beloved. How how does that, thinking about eternity, thinking about what God has given to us, what is promised, thinking about all the things we get caught up in that's just going to dissolve away, not that we don't enjoy the goodness of God and the gifts of God, but at the end of the day, all of it it is without substance. How does that impact the way you, the way you grandparent your children? grandkids, the way you parent your children, and the way you look at your spouse as being an, inherit, uh, an inheritor of the kingdom of God. How does that impact the way we treat one another, the things that we serve and the, and the, things, the way we fight sin in our life and pursue holiness? That's the goal, isn't it? Here we see not only Paul teaching us That we're to have an earnest expectation to exalt Christ, to live with an eternal perspective. But thirdly, let me mention this. Living the gospel is living with another's orientation for their joy in Christ. Jesus, verse 24 through 26. Notice he continues on in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh, let me go back to verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to part and be with Christ, for that is far better. I have underlined and marked beside that in my Bible, amen. I think there's um, a place in your Bible probably for that too if you have a habit of writing. It says, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He mentioned earlier in verse number two, or 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, in other words, if I am to continue on and my life be spared, the outcome of this means that I'll be able to go on and continue to minister as, as I have done In the past, he says, well, if I go on like this, then there's a lot of fruitful labor left for me. And at first, you might be like, well, that's kind of self-serving. He's thinking about himself and fruitful labor. But he clarifies what he means by that beginning in verse number 24. It is necessary on your account. It is labor 
that is given served for you. It is needful that he remains. His desire is to see their progress progress in faith and joy. Now we've seen earlier that Paul rejoiced in the fact that the gospel is advancing. Despite all the barriers and the chains in which he himself wore, the word of God is not bound, is not chained. Here his desire and, and his, his joy, his anticipation of his release is not just that the advancement of the gospel, it will continue to go forward, but for the advancement of the saint. Their joy, their fullness, their maturity in Christ, their progress, as it were, in Jesus Christ. Well, I remember uh, going down to a... Um, trip to New York City with with, uh, Pastor Ed. We had quite a few people going at this trip, and really it was more like a power walk, six-mile trip. Um, I tried to take a picture, and Ed was gone. (laughs) And as you know, I stand out in New York City, as you would think when I ask for directions. But anyway, he was just seeing if I had a sense of direction, but I didn't. One of the things you, you see is so many people with headphones on. Everywhere you looked, people was in their own world. Nobody made eye contact with you. I can remember years ago uh, taking a trip with my cousin to New York City. It was the first time uh, we went, and I was sitting outside on a porch. It was basically the sidewalk, so I probably looked like I was panhandling. I don't know. <laughs> but just for the fun of it, I was drinking my coffee, and I was saying good morning to people as they walked by. Luckily, the cops did not come. There was a gentleman who actually watched me as I was uh, saying good morning, how are you doing, you know, and, and those things like that. There was a gentleman that got near me, looked dead at me, walked across the street, went down past me, come back on this side of the street, and continue his morning route to his, his office. I thought that was kind of funny, but anyway, until the one guy who said good morning looked like he was going to mug me. We can live in a world filled with people and be in our own world. You can live surrounded by many faces and be ignorant to their needs. It's not just a pan, uh, not just a problem in, in big cities and, and with headphones on and just kind of drowning out the noise in the world around you. It, it, it's everywhere. It's a it's it's a pandemic of humanity. We are at. at And a nice way of saying it, we are self-centered sinners. We're selfish. You don't have to teach your child to be selfish. You have to teach them to share, right? Share that with so-and-so, and and they don't do it. And and so you have to kind of instill that. I was about to say beat that in them, but I shouldn't say that from the pulpit. You have to get it in them however you get it in them. And, And one of the challenges we face as Christians is we bring that along with us. And you say, surely not. You're born again. You have the Spirit of God living in you. And you, the, the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart, you, you kind of, that problem's fixed, right? Well, I mean, just turn to 1 Corinthians. One of the most disturbing New Testament books in the Bible. Some of us like it because it, it speaks about all kinds of fascinating things in it. And yet it's a rebuke for the very fact that you guys are selfish. 
You're gifted, you're talented, you have all of this stuff, but you're only concerned with yourself. So much so and so disturbing that even your communion service is, is under God's divine judgment. You can find a reference to that in First Corinthians 11. But nevertheless, we battle with that. And that is the one of the things we grow in, how to love and what love looks like. One of the things I think as we look at Paul's conversation here to the Corinthians and his anticipation of coming to them and their progress in the faith and their joy that it might be full is, is to tell us, to show us, to remind us, to, to, to not look at ourselves and let it be the subject of our entire life, everything revolving around us. It was a revolution when we realized, scientific revolution, when we realized the sun was the center of the universe. And for some of us, if I could say it lovingly, it's a revolution to realize you're not the center of the universe. There's an other's orientation, an other's bent. Jesus taught us that. He taught his disciples as they were meandering about who's going to be the the greatest and what side are you going to get and what side am I going to get in the middle of all that. He says, don't you understand if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you're going to have to serve people, care for people, love people. Consider people, even the godly church of joy and, 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 and rejoicing in this letter that he gives us at Philippi. Chapter number two, he begins and reminds them to, to look at the needs of others. Chapter number four, get along together. All of that showing that, that part, of, part of living the Christian life and following Jesus is also having another's orientation for their joy in Christ Jesus. Now, when I first considered this, I considered it through the lens of Psalm 67, which said, Let the people praise you, O God, that all the people praise you, and let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's evangelistic, isn't it? There's one great desire of the body of Christ, and that is that people outside of Christ may come to know the fullness of the joy of being inside him. What it means to be born again and to have your sins forgiven and have newness of life, forgiveness, and and a new life in Christ Jesus. There's joy in that. That that ought to be the passion and heartbeat of any body of Christ. But here he's speaking more than just evangelistically. Sometimes we can think that way about those outside. It's much harder to think that way about people that were around all the time. Amen? Amen. Some of you struggle with that, like me. Here he's speaking to the congregation. I desire that you're, to see your progress in Christ, desire to see your joy in Christ fulfilled. Now, I wonder what it would be like if we lived our marriages out that way with an other's, or, other's orientation. I mean, if you lived in such a way to where your desire, your ambition, part of your ministry, part of your work was to see your spouse's joy in the Lord, progress. See them trusting Christ and growing and, and praying for them in that fashion isn't part of our conflict relationally because we want to see our own joy and 
and sometimes at the expense of others. Not just there, but but you could take that to any relationship that we go into that we have. Do we have a desire to see others joy in Christ? Now, it doesn't mean that we just want people to go around and be silly and happy in one way. No, the qualification here is their progress, a genuine care that they would grow in Christ Jesus, which at times may seem at first unloving. And someone confronts you about a sin or something going on in your life at first, it is not pleasant, is it? Yeah, but if the heart and the motivation is there in love, it's out of that desire to see you grow in your faith that that they, they even approach the whole thing for your joy, that you would experience the fullness of walking in fellowship with Christ. It isn't just others and their response to you because sometimes we would say, I want everybody around me to to have an other's orientation. How many of you would agree with that? But that I would have an other's orientation. For some of us men, I'll speak to men, I don't know. You women, I have to flesh this out on your own. My mind only goes so far in application. But for some of us men, we are so task-oriented that, I mean, you could, the kids could be burning down the house, and, and I wouldn't know it until I was sitting there in ashes sometimes, you know. But that's so true not only in the, that regard but that's oftentimes true you're so busy we're so caught up in us and what we're doing that we we really forget to reach out and minister and serve others if we're following christ then without doubt we will follow christ with another's orientation because he will continue to point us towards others along the way well, you have two more principles for you on the back of your handout. You can look at those, and maybe Lord willing, we'll look at them next week. But here Paul teaches us <clears throat> something about the pattern of his own life and principles that should mark us as we follow Christ. When we should live with an expectation to exalt him, Christ, in all things. We should live with an eternal perspective. And we should live with another's orientation for their joy in Christ Jesus. With that, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you that we can call you Abba Father. Because of the spirit which you've given to us. Because of the son which was, was crucified and rose again for us. Lord, thank you for the work in our life as you continue to grow us to be more Christ-like. We grow in the ways in which we follow Christ and in our discipleship. And we just praise you that the progress of that really is your word at work through your spirit. Lord, I pray that these simple thoughts and principles may be an encouragement and at times a spur in our minds as we go throughout this week pray that you would just uh, work in the lives of your children. And Lord, I do pray for those here this morning that do not know you, God, that they would see that everything that we need is given to us in Christ. 
Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sins and their stubbornness and that they would run to Jesus who promises that he would never cast us out, any who come to him. In Jesus' name, amen.